So much American literature frames travel as luxurious and carefree. Along the open road, we can be whoever we want to be, right? Not so for African-American travelers. Who are you? George Freeman, sir. This here is my nephew Atticus and his friend Letitia. Where y'all from? Chicago, sir. You're a long way from home. Oh, we're just passing through, taking a little bathroom break, sir, is all. Any of you all know where the sun downtown is? Yes, sir, we do. Well, this is the Sundown County. And if I had found you in my woods like animals after dark, it would have been my sworn duty to hang every single one of you from them trees. It's not sundown yet. That's from the hit show Lovecraft Country. It's based on the book by the same name. And this isn't just fiction. It is the lived experience of many Black writers and everyday Black people that part for me is the part that sticks the most, is how unexpected it was. Because if you can expect where and when, you can prepare for it. If you can't, then you always have to be on guard. And that creates a kind of anxiety that's always with you that leads to a kind of cultural trauma that stays in the memory. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. This week, the ongoing travel experiences of Black Americans. As Jim Crow became more prominent, Black Americans had to ride Jim Crow on the railroad. Mariam Thaggard is the author of a new book called Riding Jane Crow, and she says that Black women's travel experiences are the true measure of the success of American freedom, privilege, and progress. Was there a period right after the Civil War, to your knowledge, where Black men and women could ride trains freely, or was it always pretty tricky. No, it was always very tricky. You could never really determine in advance how you would be treated, either by the conductor or fellow white passengers on the train car. So in some locations, African-Americans could purchase first-class tickets and would have no problems. But in other spaces, in both the South and in the North, you would have conductors very violently eject Black men and women from the first-class space. You could never quite be certain how you would be treated. That sort of ambiguity really frustrated African-American travelers. Probably one of the most famous examples of a Black middle-class woman being ejected from a first-class train car space is Ida B. Wells. She wrote a book called Southern Horrors, really important book that highlighted the fact that Southern lynchings really took place because of the sort of economic or political independence of African-Americans and not because African-American men were raping white women. But when Ida B. Wells was a young adult woman, she got a first-class ticket sat in the first-class space, and the conductor wanted her to move to a Jim Crow car. Uh, She refused, and the conductor tried to very violently remove her from the first-class space. She was finally ejected at the sounds of applause from the white passengers, and she sued. She won her lawsuit in the lower courts, The decision was overturned at the state Supreme Court, Tennessee State Supreme Court. She's just one of many women who sued when they were forced off of these first-class spaces, sometimes known as ladies' cars. Um, These were cars for white women who were traveling alone or with a male relative or companion. And Black women, when they wanted to ride in these ladies' spaces, were for the most part, forced off. I was fascinated that you discovered many Black intellectuals of this era, this Jim Crow era, would write into their contracts that they had to be given accommodations in a Pullman car. And that was because it would give them the dignity of riding in comfort, but sort of apart from the scary space of trying to ride around with white people in the open. Right. Burger T. Washington was one of those intellectuals, one of those prominent 
Black figures who preferred writing in Pullman because it just offered a level of safety and security that you wouldn't get just riding in a traditional first-class train car or especially a Jim Crow car. Weren't Black women train travelers of that era protected by the Civil Rights Act of 1875 that prevented racial discrimination in public accommodations? In some cases, they were. Um, Unfortunately, that law was nullified by a Supreme Court decision in 1883. After 1883, it became much harder to rely upon the courts to address the discrimination Black travelers experience. You give us a wonderful glimpse into some strong, feisty women who sued the railroad company for denying them that freedom to travel. Right. One of the more intriguing figures is a woman from Corinth, Mississippi. Uh, Her name was Jane Brown, apparently a very attractive uh, African-American woman. She wanted to ride in a first-class train car going from Corinth, Mississippi to Memphis, Tennessee, purchased a first-class ticket, was trying to sit down in the first-class space, and the conductor forced her off and was very violent in trying to remove her. She sued, and the railroad company claimed that she was a prostitute, that she had bad morals, and that white women travelers wouldn't want to sit next to a Black female passenger known for being a prostitute. The residents who testified in the trial talked about how she wasn't a prostitute, but a kept woman with some unidentified man in the town. It was just an unusual lawsuit in which we see how a woman, a Black woman's personal life raised as a way to sort of defend a railroad company's actions. Who won? Jane Brown won her original case. She won $3,000. A jury of white men awarded her $3,000. The railroad company did try to appeal, and they lost the appeals. Tell me about the woman who, during slavery, actually dressed up like a white male planter so she and her husband could escape on a train to freedom. Yes, this is the really amazing story of Ellen Craft and her husband, William Craft. Ellen Craft was a light-skinned African-American enslaved woman in Georgia, she and her husband came up with this plan that she would dress up as a white male planter and her dark-skinned husband, William, would pretend to be her slave. In order to get from Georgia to the north, they have to ride uh, on a train. We have just enough time to talk about another kind of employment for Black women, during the post-Reconstruction train era. And these were the famous waiter carriers, women who sold food to travelers on the train platforms. Were there many such platforms across the country? I think there were waiter carriers at any space where two or more train lines met each other. The women who worked in Gordonsville, Virginia, were primarily African-American women. Um, And they were known for the chicken that they served at these train stations. At one point, they stopped selling on the train platform and they had to sell from the very railroad tracks. And another point in their history, they were banned altogether from selling anywhere near the Gordonsville train station. But they were providing such an important service. Travelers loved it. Right, travelers loved it. The other businesses selling food or catering to uh, train passengers didn't like their presence. Uh, And there were some residents, I think, who had concerns about the sort of image that these Black women created since they were usually the first thing passengers entering Gordonsville. Sometimes they were the first thing that passengers would see. And I think there was some concern about these Black women representing 
this small southern town. I think they were stereotyped, basically. You know, it's interesting. Today, Gordonsville embraces the legacy of these waiter carrier women. It has an annual Fried Chicken Day festival and a 5K chicken run. And you point out that these are actually legacies of these women. Right. That's one of the contradictions, one of the paradoxes I found with the waiter carriers. They're consecutively displaced. First, they're selling from the Gordonsville platform. Then they have to sell from the very tracks. And then they are banned altogether. It's just ironic that now Gordonsville's <laughs> claim to fame is the food source that the the women sold and that made Gordonsville so well-known for train passengers. And now it's all good. <laughs> yeah, in some ways. You know, there's so many blues singers, men and women, who sang about trains. Can you think of a song by a woman blues singer that really captured your attention as you were writing this book? You know, there was a song by Ma Rainey, Gertrude Ma Rainey. Um, She had this song called Traveling Blues. And I really love that song because it's all about her getting her ticket and trying to find a new life somewhere down the road, somewhere down the tracks, wherever the train car is going to stop. The line is, you know, she bought her ticket. She heard the whistle blow. The train's at, at the station, and I don't know where it'll go. So just that sense of travel and adventure that we normally associate with um, Black male blues songs. Um, I I really love how Ma Rainey sings about that sense of just getting her ticket and going on the road um, that she does in Traveling Blues. Mariam Thaggart is an associate professor of English at SUNY Buffalo. Her new book is Riding Jane Crow, African-American Women on the American Railroad. A lot of African-American literature concerns itself with travel, and it's a struggle with things both seen and unseen. Michael Hall is a professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University. His new book is Freedom Beyond Confinement, Travel and Imagination in African-American Cultural History and Letters. Michael, in your new book, you dive into the experiences of Black people traveling for fun in post-Reconstruction America, the time before the Green Book, and that yearning to go anywhere and everywhere— but also butting up against racism that curtailed that freedom. What was travel like during that period? Was it both joyous and fraught or mostly just scary? So I think we're looking at a both-and situation. I like to talk about it in terms of possibility and peril. And Black folks are traveling and providing narratives at least as early as the 1820s. So that's antebellum. like That's before the end of slavery. And they are traveling all over the world. Right. But of course, you have to have the means to be able to travel to particular kinds of places. So common black folk are not like traveling internationally early on. But when we get to the 20th century, they are right. But black folks are traveling all over the world, trying to enjoy themselves in terms of the open road. But they're experiencing obstacles right in terms of racism that their European-American counterparts simply don't experience. And give me a feeling for the kinds of obstacles over and over again they were encountering. So one of the big ones was about, like, where do you stop and can you stop, right? So let's say even for someone who had an automobile, you might imagine that they could avoid, like, issues on a bus in terms of segregation or issues on a Jim Crow train, but not so much, right? They also had to stop at gas stations. And at a lot of these places, either they weren't welcome or they couldn't use the restroom while they were there or they couldn't order food or had to get food out of the back out of the, back of the place. Um, so there were all these other layers, right? 
um, that they encountered that European Americans simply did not encounter when going on a trip, even to the point that some people would say that they would travel nonstop 12 hours so that they would not be caught in some form of an incident. Would you even read in some of the accounts how they prepared the vehicle or their travel experience so they could avoid stopping? Oh, you hear a lot from folks about, like, particularly packing meals. Folks always pack meals. In addition to that, folks would pack toiletries. And this was even, this particular for folks, like, on a train. Because sometimes when a train stopped, particularly in the U.S. South, there were not, there may not be a restroom available for African-Americans, or there might be a segregated bathroom that's not being well kept. And some, some folks, for instance, would have to pack toiletries because they would have to, like, walk out into, like, the woods or high grass, literally to use the restroom um, if they were on a train. Were you reading diaries or letters or what? Everything. Diaries are really big. Autobiographies are really big. But I'm also looking at literary fiction, like what happens in the imagination. Like that, for me, you can't, like, divorce from other forms of writing. Where did this idea to write about Black travel during that era first come to you? Graduate school. I had a number of side hustles in graduate school, as most folks do. Um, and a big one, <laughs> yeah. a big one for me was working in archives uh, at Emory University. I worked there for like five years, and I would always find these little treasures. And I stumbled upon the 1949 edition of the Green Book. It's the first time I encountered it, alongside a copy of what was called the Negro Traveler. And so I came back to my department talking about it, and another another professor ran to his office and came back. And he actually had a drama, a play by Calvin A. Ramsey that was based on the Green Book. And immediately I was like, oh, wow, can I create a project out of this? And it turns out, yes, I could. Had you, I mean, you were young back then, even in grad school. And had you understood just how fraught travel was during this period? Or you, had you happily been going through your modern life, not realizing what people had gone through? Um, so I had a good idea, especially being from Louisiana. Like we had this concept of sundown town still, where there are these towns where like you don't want to stop because like you might still experience some act of discrimination. So I had this idea of mobility, particularly for African-Americans being fraught. What I did not understand was the various cultural responses, like the kind of ingenuity that black folks mustered in response to it. So I had no idea that there was this whole guidebook that was published from 1936 to 1967 pretty regularly. I had no idea that that was a thing. What city did you grow up in or what town? And what are the sundown towns nearby in Louisiana? Oh, that's a cagey one. I'm not trying to call any particular place out. I will say <laughs> this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My family is a Gulf Coast family. So we're like Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi right? We're all along the Gulf Coast. In all of those states, there are places where we won't stop. I won't name any place in particular, but there are places, cities that we will not stop in, particularly when the sun is going down. You're saying the Green Book that gave Black travelers information about where they could and couldn't go or should go or not go, but it was published in the 1930s. Where were African-Americans who wanted to travel looking for guidance before then? either word of mouth or the black press. And for me, the black press was the precursor to all these guidebooks. And I would go as far back as like anti-lynching campaigns by folks like Ida B. Wells. Like the work that she published mitigated a lot of the perilous terrain that black folks were experiencing. So I would go as far back as to look at the black press because the black press was, was a place where folks could turn to for information, not only about like what would be a nice place to travel, like the Chicago Defender would publish regularly about like Goodwill tours, right, where folks even internationally were creating these tours, understanding that there needed to be a particular kind of care with African-Americans. The black, the black press was huge in addition to word of mouth. So what would you see? Would these be regular weekly columns? Were they part of the news stories or were there sort of travel tips section of the paper? There would often be like travel tip sections that were regularly published and particularly for the Chicago Defender later on. Langston Hughes published a regular column that was explicitly travel-related. What would Langston Hughes write? He is traveling on a Jim Crow train, and he is unwilling to allow the discrimination to affect him, and he ends up uh, being attacked by passengers on a train for going against Jim Crow. 
the threat of violence wasn't just like folks calling you out of your name, like folks would set upon you and sometimes attack you. You might even be killed as a result of just simply trying to fight for your human right to access mobility in the same ways that your European American counterparts do. What did he describe? What had he done? I mean, was this just not sitting in the right seat? Yeah. And I think in this particular case, the thing was that he like passed through a car to get to the Jim Crow car. Um, It was like something as simple as that was like the slight that he had the audacity to pass through a car that he apparently shouldn't have passed through on the way to his seat. You know, it makes my blood boil when you think about that. You know, all our kids are growing up in schools with stories of Rosa Parks, but you realize through your book and so much of the literature that this was constant and every day and everywhere. Yes. Yes, and unexpected. I think that part for me is the part that sticks the most is how unexpected it was. Because if you can expect where and when, you can prepare for it. If you can't, then you always have to be on guard. And that creates a kind of anxiety that's always with you that leads to a kind of cultural trauma that stays in the memory. You know, white authors of this time were writing about the excitement of exploring open horizons and Western expansion. What did you find in the literature people writing that illustrate their travel experiences by contrast. So, for instance, a lot of European-American folk would turn to, like, Walt Whitman in terms of the concept of the open road. And the basic idea is that the road is considered democratically oriented because anyone, right, anyone has access to the road. The road doesn't discriminate. Do you know what I mean? And that's the concept. And you see this a lot from European-American writers, right, But you wouldn't get the same thing for African-American writers because they would try to access this so-called open road that's democratically oriented. But when they stepped on the road or drove on the road, their experience was markedly different. Do you know what I mean? There were barbs on the road for them. There were obstacles put in place for them. There were signs that said you can't travel on the same road as white folks. Like, do you know what I mean? And I'm speaking sort of metaphorically, but when they tried to access the same democratically oriented open road, it, just, it was a misnomer. The road was not open to them. You have a wonderful illustration of this and an ingenious workaround by a couple of teenagers who were traveling in the South to Georgia. Yes. Um, this is an auto- autobiographical moment from James Weldon Johnson's uh, Along This Way. James Weldon Johnson was a very early civil rights figure. He was an educator. He did so many things. But this uh, excerpt I'm reading from is actually when he's like 16 years old, traveling to Atlanta for school. And he's traveling with a companion by the name of Ricardo Rodriguez, who is Spanish speaking. And they have purchased first class tickets. So assumably, they paid their money, right? They should be treated like anyone else. But that's not what happens, right? The conductor decides that he sees them, he sees color in their skin, decides that they're African-American and that they that they cannot be in first class even if they purchased it. And their response to it is actually ingenious. And uh, Johnson writes here, quote, Ricardo knew there was something wrong, but didn't fully understand the conversation or the situation and asked me, could he say? That is, what did he say? I explained to him what the conductor was trying to make us do. We decided to stay where we were, end quote. And so basically what they decide to do, and it's pretty ingenious, is they decide to start speaking in Spanish. And when they do, the conductor basically says or assumes they're not African-descended folks from the U.S., they're from South America, and decides to leave them there. Like walks away because they're not the African-descended folks he's used to discriminating against from the U.S. And I point to that example because it points to both possibility and peril, right? They're in first class right? They're traveling. All of that is possibility. And then they get confronted with racism, but they it doesn't just stop there in terms of the peril that they encounter. They get pretty ingenious and they create a workaround by inhabiting another national identity. And it's just pointing to one of the ways that Black folks would have these individual and cultural responses to protect their human right to the same sort of leisure as anyone else experiences. It's also a shocking aspect of human nature. This conductor, thinking that they were black but foreign, would kick in something inside of him that would say, leave them alone. They're not the people I'm used to aggravating against, right? 
It boggles the mind. It boggles the mind. It, it does. does. It boggles it, the mind. <laughs> and that sort of thing, I think, continues to this day. I think it's true. I think it's true that folks will often have a particular kind of reaction to folks who are African descended who are from the U.S. than they will from someone who's African descended who is not. And I don't know really how to explain that or make it make sense because I don't think it actually makes sense. Yeah. You know, you were talking about your own family avoiding certain areas and just taking precautions. Even in this day and time, traveling and accommodations are still often harrowing for Black travelers. For instance, people are seeking welcoming accommodations through Airbnb. Can you talk a little bit about Airbnb and other modern travel tools that most of us take for granted that still are fraught? Sure. Um, So the thing with Airbnb is they're often plagued with these news articles where folks experience discrimination while they're trying to book Airbnb accommodations like anybody else. And they should not, right, if they're paying their money like everybody else, they should not have this extra layer of discrimination thwarting their efforts, but they do. Um, And part of that was the impetus for the creation of Noir BNB. I I hope they make the comeback because they're needed, especially in our current social and political climate, where there's this uptick in violence against black and brown people. There is also efforts to bring back uh, places that we lost in the wake of integration. Um, And so one of those places is Idlewild, Michigan. Idlewild used to be referred to as Black Eden. Um, So folks like... uh, Della Reese would perform there. Like it was like a huge summer resort time for uh, resort town for Black folks, where they could really enjoy themselves. And in the wake of integration, that is to say, post nineteen sixty four, Black folks because they could go other places stopped patronizing so heavily, and much of it fell into disrepair. But there are efforts right now at both the local and state level to bring back this Black eating with force. And I think that this is a time, like there's a need for these kind, a kind of resurgence of these kind of places. So I don't just want this one Black Eden to come back. I want a collection of Black Edens to pop up all over the globe. Michael Hall, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you very much, Sarah, for inviting me to talk with you. And a particular shout out to Lauren, associate producer, because she is dope. She's so dope. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Hall is a professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University. His new book is Freedom Beyond Confinement, Travel and Imagination in African-American Cultural History and Letters. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. In the early 1900s, Phyllis Wheatley YWCA served African-American girls and women because almost all the public spaces at that time were unsafe for them. Michelle Ellis Young recently became the CEO of the YWCA chapter in Norfolk, Virginia, and she realized something was off about the recorded history of the chapter. Its founder, Black philanthropist and educator Laura E. Titus, had been nearly erased from the record. So Young is working to write Laura Titus back into the history and restore the original building that housed the area's first Black YWCA. Michelle, when you became director of the YWCA in Norfolk in 2021 and you started looking into the history of the chapter, what did you find? Well, I think what struck me the most is coming in as a leader of this organization is really the hidden jewel that was there. We're in the midst of uh, a pandemic and uh, unrest, civil unrest across the country. And to stumble upon this little known Black history fact, if you would, of our true founding and a lady by the name of Laura E. Titus, who has a fascinating story of philanthropy in Hampton Roads, and specifically as it relates to YWCA Southampton Roads in our history. Her being the person, a Black woman, uh, back in 1899, who formed the Phyllis Wheatley YW 
in the community of Norfolk and then petitioned YWCA USA to bring the official legal entity of the organization to the area in 1906. And that charter was granted in 1908. So tell me a little bit about Laura E. Titus. What was she like as a young woman? Where was she born and educated? Well, from the little known facts that we know about her, she was born in this community in uh, Norfolk at that time. Uh, She was a student who matriculated at Hampton Institute, now Hampton University. She graduated in 1876, actually a year after Booker T. Washington, who finished from Hampton Institute. She probably knew him. I'm pretty sure she probably did, just because of the the tight bond that students have at Hampton Institute. I'm I'm a Hamptonian as well uh, from (laughs) Hampton University. And so I can only imagine what it was like to be in school with him. And, you know, we know all about him and what he went on to do to found a Tuskegee Institute, later Tuskegee University. Uh, But little is known about Laura E. Titus. What we do know is that she was a woman who spearheaded many organizations and movements uh, in this area, and her thumbprint uh, resonates across a number of, of Black organizations. But she had a great affinity for women causes and for children. Uh, And so her travels uh, as part of a singing group, actually, with her sisters and some other counterparts uh, really led her to the work of YWs across the country, because at that time there was not a a place really for women who were traveling, uh, particularly Black women, to be able to rest and and recover and uh, get their uh, needs met when they were on travel. And she always remembered that about the YW. You've said that these YWCAs back in the day were called Phyllis Wheatley YWCAs. Who was Phyllis Wheatley? Phyllis Wheatley was a young uh, African-American woman who uh, is noted to be the first African-American to pen a book of poems. Because of that notoriety as a woman, as a Black woman, as a young woman, uh, who became the first African-American uh, to have poetry penned, uh, that really resonated with uh, Black YWs of that time. So when Laura E. Titus of Norfolk established her Phyllis Wheatley YWCA, was there a white counterpart at that time? There was not. Um, she brought the concept to community in 1899, petitioned in 1906, charter was granted uh, Uh, right about October of 1908. But when you look at the history, most of our history points to a specific year, and that year is 1911 here in Hampton Roads. It came three years after the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA of Norfolk was in community. And what we know is that when Those two YWs merged in 1972. It appears that our history picked up the history of the white YW and lost that history of the black YW. You learned that the Y of that time had a very distinct mission regarding the safety and well-being of young African-American women This was a time when the ports and the military, I mean, Norfolk has the largest naval base in the world. The ports and the military created dilemmas for young women who were traveling to Norfolk. Mm -hmm. The YW at that time, the Phyllis Wheatley YW, uh, served as a a safe haven, if you will, for women who were traveling uh, to the area at that time, you know, what we would call human trafficking in today's world uh, was happening even back then. And so what the YW, uh, the Black YW would do is organize. That's that advocacy, but it's also that activism piece, right? They would organize themselves 
uh, to be the shift takers of meeting these women when they got off the trains and off the uh, buses coming to community to make sure that they made it to safe places in order to take care of whatever brought them here to the, the, the area. What was the what was the fear that strange men would prey on these young women as they stepped off the train or bus? Yeah, it was, if you will, a form of of prostitution. If uh, these young women who were coming with a little to no money coming into the area, it afforded, unfortunately, an opportunity for those that uh, had some level of means to uh, interact with these women in an unhealthy way. Where would the women be led to stay? Where could they sleep at night? Uh, well, YW uh, actually had facilities in the area. There was uh, a noted white philanthropist and former slave owner in the area by the name of Captain John L. Roper. And once the charter uh, became a legal entity, he was instrumental in helping her to secure a home that would be the first resting place. I believe it was on Bank Street, 333 Bank Street in Norfolk, as a place of refuge where women would be able to uh, have a place to rest. You've looked at the YW that became the dorms that are on the grounds of what is now Norfolk State University. Do you have plans for it? Is there something that you would like to see happen with that space and that building? Oh, my. I would uh, love to see that building that sits at the Phyllis Wheatley uh, dormitory, what we knew as the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA Norfolk, uh, become what it used to be. Really, I envision it being a community center, a community center that serves the purpose of what it did back in the day, which was meeting the needs of people in community. What we call workforce development today is taking place in this rejuvenated center. What we call entrepreneurial incubators is taking place in that uh, that center. Uh, what we know about uh, community meetings and gatherings is taking place in that center. And so that facility really has an opportunity to be an answer to uh, some of, of the things that uh, trouble the community that it sits in. It has an opportunity to be. There's a, a old hymn that says to brighten a corner where you are and to have a center that is vibrant, that is alive, that is mission focused and mission driven, doing the work uh, that needs to be done so desperately in that community really becomes a bright spot when we talk about brightening, brightening the corner where you are. Is that building now being used as that kind of community center? It's not. Unfortunately, uh, it's a gorgeous facility. We just went over last week. The guts are still there. The frame is beautiful. The yard is beautiful. And when you look inside, you, you, you can see the despair, but you can also see the difference that could be made uh, with the opening of those doors. Well, Michelle Young, I wish you all the best in this endeavor. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. It's just awesome to be able to share this uh, hidden jewel uh, of Hampton Roads with so many of your listeners and inspire others to dig deep and, and find the history that sits right in their own backyards to brighten their own corners. Michelle Ellis Young is the CEO and president of the YWCA Southampton Roads. Back in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of young people were agitated. Between civil uprisings, the war, assassinations, and parents just not understanding, many young people decided simply to hit the road. Richard Straw is a professor of history at Radford University with a forthcoming book about hitchhiking and the counterculture. He's interviewing people who did a lot of hitchhiking during that period, and he says for most of them it was all about freedom and adventure. Richard, you've been collecting stories about people who used to hitchhike back in the 60s, or what you call the long 60s, 60s into the 70s. Were you a hitchhiker? Nope. 
Uh, I was not. I picked up hitchhikers. I, I was always fortunate enough. My dad had a, had a business where he had a truck. So even in high school and in college, I always had transportation. So I was the guy that drove places. Did you eye them carefully before you did? No, because the hitchhikers that I picked up, you know, they looked like me. They were my generation. They were, you know, my tribe, you know, my people. And uh, so, no, I didn't even, I never thought twice about it. Not that you wouldn't pick up women, but did you mostly see men hitchhiking? Nope. A lot of, a lot of girls, uh, teenage girls were on the road. I never picked up a single girl hitchhiking when I was young because uh, I just never saw one. When I was picking up hitchhikers, it was a really specific uh, area of, of Interstate 70 actually out in Missouri that I was on all the time. What did people say to you? It must have been fun to just say, what's your story? Where are you headed? Most of the time, you know, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd lean over and roll the window down. Sometimes you were pretty far ahead of the person, so they had to kind of run up to your car. They would always come up to the passenger side window and, you know, like, hey, you know, where are you heading? And I would just say, hey, how you doing? You know, where are you going? And, you know, they would say, oh, you know, like Kansas City or anywhere, anywhere. Where are you going? So, hey, yeah, get in, you know. Were there movies at that time? I'm thinking like Easy Rider and motorcycle riding yeah. for fun. Yeah. Were there movies that glorified hitchhiking during that era? Uh, no. There were lots and lots and lots of drive-in movies, B-movies, that were about the horrors of hitchhiking, like don't hitchhike. But, you know, hitchhiking is featured in a lot of pop songs from that era, you know, like Standing on the Corner in Winslow, Arizona. Such a fine sight to see. It's a girl, it's a girl my, my lord. my lord in a flatbed <laughs> Ford slowing down to take a look at me. Yes. Yeah. So there, there's a statue there now to commemorate that verse in that song. Well, I'm standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. It's such a fine sight to see. It's a girl, my lord, in a flatbed Ford slowing down to take a look at me. the women you did interview is 73 now, but she told you she hitchhiked following the words, the lyrics of a Beatles song. Tell me about her. Oh, yeah. Well, that's Pam. Pam is a good friend of mine. And she told me that in the Beatles song, uh, She's Leaving Home, the story is of a young girl that wakes up in the morning and she's unhappy with her home life. And uh, she gets up at 5 a.m. and she writes her parents a note and leaves it on the kitchen table and, and she leaves. Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock as the day begins Silently closing her bedroom door Leaving the note that she hoped would say more she goes downstairs to the kitchen clutching her handkerchief Quietly turning the back door key Stepping outside she is free She And that's what Pam did. She was a student at Ohio University at the time, and she decided that um, she didn't want to be there anymore. And she just decided, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of here. And she left, and she didn't see her parents again for three years, I think. But uh, yeah, I think her story is pretty typical of a lot of young people who saw hitchhiking as just a means to get away from a situation that they that they wanted to change or they wanted to just find something new. What other stories akin to that have you heard? Well, you know, this was a generation of people that for one reason or another were questioning the meaning of life. They were questioning 
motivations of institutions. Those kinds of uh, activities were reflected in, in music and dress and theater and even dance and other kinds of pop culture. And the generation gap was a real thing. Young people were estranged from their parents and you know, the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement and all the turmoil of that period of time was dividing people uh, into camps. And um, hitchhiking became associated with uh, kind of the free-spirited lifestyle, you know, of people they called hippies. And uh, it, was, it was an alternative form of transportation, and it was a, a means of travel that was really attractive. The, the, the youngest person that I interviewed at the time she was hitchhiking was a woman who was uh, 14 when she hitchhiked across the country the first time. So she's more like a runaway, really. She was, yeah. I mean, you know, some of these people were, were runaways, you know. I mean, they were people that were running away, you know, from something, or they were just seeking some adventure. I mean, you know, California was this beacon of hope and excitement and adventure. And, you know, it's where all the cool things were happening. And that's where people wanted to go. I mean, it was the epicenter of the counterculture. And it was the place to be, you know. It was where all the music was emanating from that was identified as American music, you know, psychedelic music. The, the movement was definitely to the West. There's something different about the West and the perception on the part of naive Eastern and Midwesterners, right? Oh, for sure. For sure, yeah. I mean... California in that era was the place to be. Most of the people that I've talked to, I, I would characterize them as just people looking for something new, looking for freedom. And, you know, as much of a cliche as it sounds like today to say this, we were these wide-eyed, innocent kids that thought all we had to do was get to California, you know, and everything would be great. And I've had people that tell me, like uh, Ron, the husband of Pam that I mentioned earlier, he said, you know, I got to California, you went to parties, and you just crashed wherever you were, and, you know, Golden Gate Park was constantly filled with people, and there were people singing, and people were doing drugs everywhere. And I think part of the reason why I never hitchhiked is because I think I didn't have that kind of free spirit quite frankly. Uh, I was a little too uptight at that time. And uh, I would have worried, well, like, where am I going to sleep? You know, these were people who didn't think about stuff like that. And you admired it. I kind of did. And I kind of didn't. You know, I looked the look. I, I, I looked like Charlie Manson. Whoa. Yeah, I had long, long hair, and I had a long, I had a big beard, full beard, uh, you know, and, and, you know, my uniform was a T-shirt and a work shirt unbuttoned and blue jeans and sandals, I mean, pretty oh, yeah. much, or desert boots, you know, wore that year round, right? I was a serious student, though. I didn't party a lot. I, I was in an old-timey band. But other than that, you know, I didn't have a lot of time for that sort of thing. So I recognize that this 14-year period is the counterculture period, but what also led to the diminution of hitchhiking, right? Did these people all just grow up and get jobs and families, or were there some terrible experiences widely circulated? Well, places like San Francisco uh, and, and Boulder, Colorado, Ann Arbor, Santa Fe— those were those were places that drew a lot of hippies, and then they kind of filtered out into other areas of, let's say, New Mexico and California and Nevada. By 1970, you know, the, the Haight-Ashbury area was, it was just a lot of drug addicts, and it had lost all of that charm that it had had for actually only a very short period of time, probably early 60s to maybe 67 or 68, something like that. And, you know, the end of the Vietnam War, the Nixon resignation, the changes in American culture, the, the move towards more conservative politics. And I just think as society changed, it just became less and less attractive as an alternative because there were fewer and fewer people doing it. But I do also think the perception of hitchhiking as something dangerous also changed as a result of just more and more violence in general, I think, in, in our culture. Would you pick up hitchhikers today? Well, I picked up a couple of guys, actually, uh, about two years ago on Interstate 81 because they were clearly with a vehicle that was disabled. But, you know, 
Probably not, <laughs> quite yeah. honestly. Um, you just never know. And also, I mentioned earlier about people talking to their kids about this stuff. You know, I have had people say, you know, I would never in a million years let my kids do what I did. So true for all of us. It is. It's a different world. You know, these are people that really look back on that period of time with incredibly fond memories. And they see it as a unique moment that's probably never, ever, ever going to be replicated. And there, there's this tremendous sense of nostalgia in almost everybody's voices that I've talked to about this. That, you know, yeah, that was a time when, you know, we thought we could do anything. You know, we just thought all we had to do was go out and stand on the side of the road and stick my thumb out, and the whole future was mine to take in any way that I wanted to do it. So this idea that that was the freedom generation, I mean, from what I've heard, it's true, and it's too bad that the world did change. Richard Straw, thank you for talking with me. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Richard Straw is a professor of history at Radford University. He's collecting oral histories of people who hitchhiked during the long 1960s and would like to hear from you. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Me.